invite you to turn in your Bible this evening to Psalm 17. Psalm 17. What I'd like you to do tonight is just have your Bible open, and we're going to um, go through as we uh, study it. We'll be reading it as we go along, and we'll sort of uh, have a Bible study tonight, if you would. Uh, one of the things that is difficult about the Psalms, uh, maybe you've experienced this, you, you uh, have heard about their their value, and you've read them, and you've at times been very much encouraged by them, nurtured by them. Uh, sometimes uh, a psalm seems to say exactly what you needed to hear uh, in that particular stage of your life, and then sometimes you read them and you say, I, it's difficult, difficult to connect with it. You just, it, it's hard to really engage with whatever uh, David or uh, one of the other authors of the psalms is talking about, and Psalm 17 is a bit like that. So what I'd like you to do tonight is just help us understand the context that, uh, out of which this psalm comes. And then I think the benefit of, of, of a psalm like Psalm 17 is just we get to walk with someone, a man just like us, who is in a difficult uh, trial, a difficult circumstance, and is learning what it means to live by faith. We know that one of the critical principles of being a Christian is that we, we don't walk by sight, by what we can see, what we can discern. We, 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 we live there. We experience those things. We do need to think and consider, but we don't live by what we understand, but we live by what God has said. So man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But then it takes an act of faith to lay hold of those things. Uh, when you are in a, in a difficult place, when you are in a time where you are experiencing fear because you have a doctor's appointment and you're nervous because the tone of the, in his voice uh, when, when he talked to you last wasn't encouraging and you've read maybe some articles and uh, you, you have been doing some self-diagnosing and you're just, it's hard to sleep at night. Or uh, things are not going well at work and um, it's very possible you're going to lose your job. Uh, your marriage is, is not what you had hoped it would be. It, it's difficult. It's hard. Sometimes you wonder if you're going to make it. Uh, your, your children are not behaving uh, as they grow up. They don't, maybe haven't laid hold of the faith the way that you expected they would. And they're asking questions you never thought you would hear come out the mouth of your child. And those are the realities that God's people live with. And in those times... We, we know what we ought to say and how maybe we ought to feel. Uh, the challenge is how to actually lay hold of those things we know to be true that, uh, in a way that it, it changes the way we're in that, in, that, in that circumstance so that we can be in a difficult place actually with joy, with peace to the honor of God. So that's what David is wrestling with. We don't know exactly when this psalm was written. Uh, it's most likely it was written when David was running for his life from King Saul. If you remember the story, David was a young boy, 15 years old. Uh, he was out shepherding his father's sheep. Remember, he was the youngest of the sons, and, and he likes shepherding the sheep. It isn't an exalted position, but David loves it. He's out there. We know that he's writing poetry. Uh, he, uh, honing his skill. He's, he, he's learning. He knows how to play an instrument. Um, David is enjoying his God as a young boy. 
a 15-year-old. And then one day, this man Samuel shows up to the, the homestead and uh, says, I've come here to, an, to anoint a king and uh, goes through all the sons. None of them are the right one. Finally, they call for David. And David uh, comes and, and God says, that's him. Anoint him. And so Samuel the prophet, who's the leader of the land at that time, um, Samuel, or, or the spiritual leader at least, Samuel anoints David. And David's life blows up. Uh, David is uh, suddenly finding that uh, he, he ends up going, he, he defeats Goliath, a magnificent victory early in his life, and then um, he is, he's welcomed into Saul's household, and he's, he's actually uh, playing music for King Saul, and, and uh, he's rising in rank. He becomes a soldier and then a captain. Uh, he, he's, he becomes a leader, a man of significance. And then Saul tries to spear him to the wall, and, and um, David is on the run for years, hiding in caves. And he doesn't know how long this is going to go on. This is most likely the context where we find David writing this. He's hunted like an animal. He's forced underground, running for his life. And he doesn't know when it's going to stop. He doesn't know how it's all going to turn out. We know the story. We can read the book. He doesn't know it. Isn't that true that so often in our lives, that's one of the most difficult parts of the trial, whatever it is. We don't know how it's going to fold out. If we, would just, if we just had the playbook, right? The Lord said, okay, you're really sick right now, but by Tuesday, you're going to be fine. Or it's going to be a difficult year, but I'm going to be with you, and these things are going to happen, and by this time next year, it would just make it so much more simple. God doesn't do that. Why not? Because he, he says he's given us everything we need to live in faith and hope and joy, and, and uh, he calls us to lay hold of it. And that's what David is, is wrestling with, and that's what he finds here in Psalm 17. Let's look then at the first few verses as David just begins his prayer asking God to hear him and to consider his case. Let's look at the first two verses. Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. Now what is David feeling as he's writing that? Well, he's feeling like he's a victim of injustice. And he's coming to God and uses, in a sense, courtroom language. Lord, hear my case. I'm going to lay out for you my cause and, and judge, O oh Lord. Um, he has a deep sense of being wronged. Put yourself in his shoes. David is hunted. David is, uh, Saul is trying to take his life. David hasn't done anything wrong. He's not done anything wrong. He was perfectly fine out shepherding the sheep. And then uh, God decided to make him king. David didn't decide that. It was, it, was, um, it was Saul's own fault that he was being removed from the throne. It was because of Saul's sin that God was done with Saul and Saul's uh, household. And if Saul had any fear of God, or if he would have acknowledged God in any way, he would have accepted the rightness of God's judgment on his household and the rightness of God uh, promoting David to be his successor. And it wasn't as if Saul didn't know David. He did know David. David had lived in his house. David had proven in every way to be a faithful, loyal servant. But now Saul is sending out his armies to put David to death, to hunt him down like a like they're chasing a wild animal. Saul is spreading lies about David. 
I mean, the injustice of it stinks to the heavens. And David appeals then to the Lord. You know this, Lord. Hear a just cause. And as he argues, you see, with his innocence, he pleads, um, as, he, as he pleads his case, he argues his innocence. Notice verse 3, 4, and 5. You've tried my heart. You've visited me by night. You have tested me, and you will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. Now, David is not saying that he is without sin, that he's sinless, but he is saying here that he is blameless in regards to this circumstance. He has not dealt wrongfully. He has not spoken wickedly with his lips. He's purposed not to do that. In fact, if you read the story, you'll find that when David does say something that he feels is dishonoring to King Saul in some way, he repents of it. You see, it's, David has been acting in the right. He has not taken the ways of violent men, verse 4. He's not taken matters into his own, own hand, even though he could. Remember when God, in a sense, gave Saul into his hand? David and his men were hiding way in the back of the cave, and Saul came in to relieve himself. And King David could have just taken his life like that. Twice David had a, a great opportunity to take Saul's life, and both times he resisted. Why? Because Saul is, David, uh, Saul is God's anointed king, and, and David knows it's not his place to, to take violence, to take matters into his own hand. He's been careful to walk in paths of obedience, verse 5. And, and David says in verse 3, Lord, you know this. You've tried my heart. You've tested me in this. David knows that God knows that he's innocent. And yet the circumstance continues. And so he prays, help me. Help me. Verse 6 and 7. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior, of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. And now you, you note there's been a slight shift in the psalm. David's um, Frustration, his anxiety, his fear is, is starting to give way as he casts himself on the Lord. I uh, call upon you for you will answer me. There's confidence here. Confidence rooted partly in the justice of his cause. But confidence, notice in verse uh, 7, rooted in the character of God. Notice how he describes God. O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. That's a wonderful description of God. The Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at his right hand. It's like precisely what you need to know when you're in a time of trouble. That God is like this, the rescuer, the Savior of those who seek refuge in him. That's what God is like, and, and so that's what David appeals to, the character of God. Now, on what is that knowledge based? Where did David learn that name of God? Where did he learn that characteristic of God? Well, he learned it in part in past experiences. When David was facing Goliath, when he was ready to go, and, and uh, he's having a conversation with King Saul, who thinks that he's woefully inadequate for the task, uh, David says to Saul, 
1 Samuel 17, you can read the story. David reminds Saul, I, I used to be a shepherd and uh, keep, I kept sheep for my father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he rose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. And he says in verse 37, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David had experiences in his past of God being a savior of those who take refuge in him. But more deep than that, more foundational than that, his conviction, his confidence is rooted in the character of God as it has been revealed in the scriptures. David, you see, is, uh, is recalling here God's saving activity, particularly in regards to the exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And there are several signs that David is, uh, has that in his mind. The, the Hebrew here, where, where we read, wondrously show, right, wondrously uh, Verse, 17, verse um, 7, wondrously show your steadfast love. That the Hebrew there it mimics the wondrous signs that we read about in the, in the plagues. These are magnificent uh, expositions and displays of the power of God and the, the covenanted love of God for Israel as he rescues them out of Egypt. They are wondrous signs of of God's power and covenanted love. And David references his, the steadfast love of God. It's, it's the covenant love of God. It's his committed love that he has for his people. What he's vowed to, the oaths that, that in a sense God has taken to be faithful to his covenant people. And then in verse 8, it, it seems to be a clear reference to Deuteronomy 10. Let me just read that for you where Moses sings a song at the end of his life about God's love for Israel. Moses says, He, God, found him, Israel, in a desert land, in the, in the howling waste of the wilderness. He, he encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. You see, David seems to have the, the language of Scripture and the truth of uh, God's saving acts in the past. Those things seem to be forming his heart and his mind as he prays this prayer. God has revealed himself. He's not a hidden God. He's revealed himself in his word. He's revealed himself in his saving acts. And David appeals to what he knows then of God. He's going to put his trust in what God has said. And he says, Lord... Put me there. Make me the apple of your eye. The eye, of course, is one of the things that, that is most tender, that the, you, you naturally, instinctively uh, protect the eye. God says, David says, Lord, I, I want to make me that. And make me that because God has promised to be that. And hide me in the shelter of your wings because God has promised to do that. And the reason David longs for, for that sort of intimate protection is because his enemies are real. They're not pretend. The circumstances are not uh, just going to sort of uh, go away. Notice in the verses 10 through 14, just quickly look at these, uh, these enemies. They are, uh, verse 10, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. So they're, they're pitiless. Uh, there's an immoral, the Hebrew here is their hearts are fat. It just means there's obesity in their conscience. They're numb 
to truth. They're numb to concern, to mercy, to compassion. They're just, they're obese and insensitive to those things. And they're arrogant. They're boastful. They're confident, verse 11. They've surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear as a young lion lurking in ambush. They're absolutely confident. Saul is confident that David is going to be brought, uh, he's going to be killed. I mean, what can one guy do against a whole army? And so Saul and his, and his army are, are extremely confident, like a young lion. Uh, they're about to pounce. David experiences that. Notice they're wicked and worldly. Verses 13. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. Deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. These are, you see, these are worldly men. Their, their portion is in this life. Remember, if you, if you remember last week, we looked at Psalm 16, where David says uh, that he's made, I've set the Lord always before me. The Lord is his, his portion, his chosen portion and my cup, verse 5. And David says, for, for these men, the world is their portion. They long for what the world offers, what the world gives. That's what they're pursuing. You see, these are not men that could be reasoned with. David could not sit down with these men and, and lay open the truth of Scripture and the truth of God and reason with them uh, the justice of his case. They don't care. They're worldly men. They're wicked men. Their portion is uh, the things of this life. And they're divinely blessed. That's the shocker. Look at verse 15. Or, or the last part of 14, excuse me. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. Do you sense the injustice of it? David's running for his life. He hadn't asked for this job. He hadn't pursued it. He hadn't tried to manipulate his way into the throne in any way. This is all God's doing. And Saul is absolutely blind to the, the, the justice of David's uh, cause. Saul doesn't care. Saul just wants to kill him. Saul is doing this even though he knows that God is, has chosen David. And there's no one to help David. There's, he can't appeal to someone else. There's no Supreme Court, for instance, he can go to and lay his... He's gotta, he goes to the Lord. But the injustice of it seems ripened in his, because of the fact that these, are, these, these guys are doing fine. They're not suffering. Their, their kids are happy. They're going to leave their abundance to their infants. They're writing out their wills. And David is not, he's not blaming God here. We need to see, why does he bring this up? Because it can be a stumbling block for God's people. Here you're doing your best to raise your, your children and, to, and, and family in the Lord, and you're trying to run a business so you can support them, and it just, it's just one obstacle after the other. And yet the guy down the road who has no concern for God, who just absolutely lives for the things of this world, his business is booming. He can't, he can't get enough guys to help. He, the money's just rolling in. Or here's a family over here, and um, they, they could care less about the Lord. It's just, an, it's just an ongoing party, and yet their, their kids are doing fine, and you're, you're struggling. Your, your children has this disability and, and that particular need, and your family's been struck with, with this uh, particular circumstance that's really painful, really hard, and it's infecting your marriage. And you look down the road, and it's just, it's just laughter all the time. And you can start thinking, well, how does that work? 
that's, that's uh, the experience of God's children. See, I think that's where David is. He's just wrestling with that a little bit. This is, this is sort of Psalm 73 stuff. If you remember Psalm 73, Asaph writes, As for me, my feet almost stumbled when I looked uh, at the arrogant. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Behold, these are the wicked, Asaph writes. Always at ease, they increase in riches. In vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. But, he says, when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a, a wearisome task. I, he couldn't figure it out. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by tears. So you see, David, when he's writing about these, these assailants, these enemies, these adversaries who seem to have it so good, he, he's writing from the perspective of their portion is in this world. This world is, is what they pursue, and this world is all that they're going to get. That God, in some sense, is pouring out his blessings. Every gift comes from above, and yet they use those blessings to live their self-satisfied lives. They, they use the blessings of God to ignore God, to deny God, and they use those blessings then of God to plunge their souls into hell. Friends, you look around, we are the most blessed country in the world. Materially speaking, there's never been a country like this country. And if you look around, what you see are people who are filling themselves then. Their portion is this world. Their portion is the stuff that money can buy. The portion is the experiences that, that uh, maybe media or entertainment or um, sexual perversion can offer. And that's, that's their portion. And they unashamedly then are, are pursuing that. So the, the, the woman on the, uh, those awful videos from Planned Parenthood is, who's selling baby parts says, I want a Lamborghini. And that makes sense to her. That's the portion. That's what makes sense to our culture. And she'll get the Lamborghini. She'll get the Lamborghini. And, and we can so easily look at, you see, the world and envy them. But David is saying, that's all they get. Their portion is in this world. And you place them in slippery places so they fall into ruin. See, because at this point in the, in the, in this, in the psalm, there's, there's now this, this settling as he comes to a close, as for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. As David considers the justice of his cause and the wickedness, the perversion, the power, the, the worldliness of his adversaries, and then what, what is their portion, and then he considers what is his portion, suddenly things begin to become more clear. And and his frustration is now settling down and faith is taking its place. He started, you see, hear me. Judge my cause. Let's get the facts on the table. And, and Lord, you decide and you act. And, and it's not that it was inappropriate, but it's just not as necessary now. It's not wrong for God's children to ask for, for, for God to intervene and to help and to hear 
But you see, what, what happens by faith is that God generally, instead of resolving the problem, works to refocus the Christian, the, to refocus the believer. And that's where David comes. As for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. It, it, it's a stunning thought. I will, I will see God, the one who is my chosen portion, my cup. Job writes similarly, I, I myself, he says, will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. If you're a Christian, that's what you want more than anything. You want to you see Jesus. You know, end of the day, you want to see Jesus. And you, and you learn as you move along in your Christian life and as you grow older and you suffer a disappointment here and, and um, a, a, a dream that's going to die here and a, a trial that's going to just be with you here. It's not going to go away. And you learn that in this life, this isn't where the greatest blessings come. The, there are many wonderful blessings and, and we thank God for them, but this isn't where we get satisfied. This isn't where your heart is going to really find its home. This isn't where, where you're going to experience what you long for, what you hope for. No matter how good the, the blessings of God might be, they're never going to be what you were created for. It's important to realize that or you're going to go chasing after things that aren't yours to have. And you're going to wreck your heart and soul and lives in the process it's critically important for us to get our eyes set on what really is our portion, what really are we living for, what really is going to bring satisfaction. It's just going to be Jesus. When I wake, I will be satisfied with your likeness. See, when David, get, when he gets there in his mind and heart, then the answer, in a sense, has already come. The circumstances haven't changed, but, but he's moved from fear to faith and even joy. Now, maybe tonight you're, saying here, you're sitting here and thinking, well, that's, that's really nice, Pastor, but you don't understand my circumstance, and I want my circumstances changed. I can't do this. And I, I would just appeal to you. Life gets hard. It gets really hard, and, and this psalm is an affirmation of that. David isn't writing just because he's having a bad day. This is, this is an ongoing, life-threatening reality. It's hard. And God knows it's hard. There's nothing in Scripture that will say just buck up. But what you see, what Scripture does, it says, well, what, what really, really matters to you? Because Scripture will push back if we say what really ultimately is necessary is that I have the life that I want to have. That I have the marriage I want to have. I have the job I want to have. I have the family I want to have. I have the, the health that I want to have. What really ultimately matters is that. Ultimately. And, and, and scripture will just push back. It doesn't work that way. In fact, that's exactly how the world thinks. I saw a little a video clip by Francis Chan. Maybe you saw it as well. He... Um, this is a great illustration. What he had, he had, a, he had a rope that just kind of trailed off the stage, this white rope, and he's, and he's holding the end of it, and there's about three inches on the end of the rope uh, wrapped with red tape, and, uh, and, and, and Francis Chan says, this, this rope is, is time, and I just want you to imagine that rope goes off into eternity. There's no end to that end of the rope. It just goes. And, and right here, this little three-inch section of red tape, that's your life. 
And then, that's your life here on earth. And then the rope just goes and goes and goes forever. And he says, you know what the crazy thing is? That people get all wrapped up about this three inches. And particularly, people get wrapped up about the last about half inch. Am I going to have enough money to retire? Are we going to have enough money to do the things that we want to do? Uh, we get all worked up, but you see about this, this three inches that we have, and, and maybe the last inch or the last half inch, and, and that's what we spend our time worrying about. That's what we spend our time praying about. That's what we spend our time thinking about, this three inches. And there's this whole eternity of rope after the three inches. <laughs> An eternity of rope that people act as though it doesn't even exist. That it, it matters not a whit. But what's happening uh, to my you know, marriage and my job and my retirement account, what's going on with the stock market, that's what I worry about. That's, that's really what I'm paying attention to. And there's all of this eternity that, I, that I'm not paying attention to. You say that's the height of foolishness. The genius of a Christian is that we realize that in this three inches right here, God has loved us and sent a Savior and God is perfectly able in these three inches of our life, all of it which matters, every bit of it, every tear is remembered. But God is at work in these three inches if you are a child of God so that your eternity is bliss. And all that rope is joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. And so the, the question for us now is, are we willing to live in this little three-inch section? Are we willing to live trusting him? And has he done enough to give us hope, even in difficult circumstances? Is there more that God could do? Could he make a better promise? Could he give you greater assurances? After he's already sent his son to die for you and to bear your sin, and in Jesus Christ he's made you a child of God and promised that you are an heir of everlasting life, and that nothing can snatch you out of his hand, is there anything that God has not done that he ought to have done to give you everything you need to live in this little section of your eternity, of your existence in hope. He, he couldn't do more than he's done. And so the challenge for us is then to believe him, to trust him, to live in hope. And that's where David goes. You see, friends, the, the genius of, of Christians living with comfort and security in this life is their hope is set on what is yet to come. The, the life that God has promised that is ahead of us. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. He talks about that we, we groan as we eagerly await our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now he says, you don't have it yet. Who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, God has given us in the gospel not just forgiveness of your sins. He's given us reasons for hope, reasons for joy, reasons for peace. Let me just quickly wrap up. Think about what hope can do for you. Think about what it did for David. This, this hope that is fixed on what is yet to come. Your absolute confidence that God will hear you, that God has saved you. He is the Savior of those who take refuge in him, and he, he's not going to abandon you. The hope that comes, notice what it does for David. It, it, it cures his envy. He looks at his adversaries. He looks at the enemies. What do they have? What do they have? 
They get the stuff of this world. You remember the story that Jesus told about Lazarus and the rich man? Lazarus was the poor man, the godly man, but had nothing. In fact, he would, he would beg at the, the gate of the rich man, and, and, and the rich man paid no attention to him, walked by. The rich man had a wonderful life. And Lazarus, the best thing he had, the, the, the dogs coming by would lick his wounds. But he belonged to God. And then his little, each man came to the end of their little three-inch section. And one entered into the bosom of Abraham, Lazarus did, and the rich man went into hell. And Jesus teaches in that parable that there's a great chasm that's fixed. Once you die, you are either with the Lord or you are without the Lord. But think of the blessedness then of Lazarus, of the poor man, the man who had nothing in this world, and yet he has, he has, he has blessedness forever and ever and ever in, in the bosom of Abraham. So, so God calls us, you see, to feast on what is going to be ours in eternity, to feast on what it's going to be like to be made completely whole with a glorified body and heart and will so that every part of you resonates perfectly with the beauty of Jesus Christ and you walk with him and you see him face to face and you serve him perfectly forever. You get to be a part of the new heaven and the new earth. You get to taste joys that this world cannot afford. You get to. You do. Because God's written your, your name on his hand. It's a cure for envy. How, can you, how could you envy people whose portion is this world? How could you envy them? They're going to lose it so quickly. And then nothing except sorrow. It's a cure for fear. If you know that you belong to God in this way and that, that you are absolutely confident that God has made you the apple of his eye, he's sheltering you under his wings, what can people, what can people do to you? Well, they can kill you. Yeah, but that's the open door to, to be with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So Psalm 56, verse 3, When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you, in God, whose word I praise, in God I trust. I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? I can't do anything except by the hand of God, and even the worst they can do, God turns for our eternal blessedness. And it's a cure for frustration. David began frustrated, he ends in faith. He walks by faith in God's character, and by, uh, in, we, we friends can walk in so much, so much confidence. God has loved us with an everlasting love in Jesus Christ. And God promises that there's great glory yet to come. Can I just remind you of what John says in 1 John 3, 2? Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We shall be like him. Can you imagine that? Because we will see him as he is, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Psalm 17 is a prayer written for real people in real difficult circumstances, but who have a real God and a real gospel and a real hope forever and ever and ever. We're going to sing here in a minute. Um, one of my favorite, I just, for some reason, this verse stuck with me as a kid, so I grew up singing this song that we're going to sing. Um, when I in righteousness at last, thy glorious face shall see. When all this weary life is past, and I awake with thee to view the glories that abide, then, then I shall be satisfied. Friends, that day is coming. I hope you're hoping for it and longing for it. Amen.
Father, you know your people here tonight. You know, Lord, some of us have just sore, sore and troubled hearts. And we believe, we are convinced you know what you're doing, and yet it's hard. And Lord, thank you that you remind us of your love for us, that you've made us the apple of your eye, and you, you shelter us tonight under your wings. Lord, some of us tonight maybe have allowed our hearts to become hard because of the difficulties that we've faced. And we've prayed and you haven't changed anything in our circumstance. And so we judge you as having failed. Forgive us for our unbelief. Forgive us for living like the pagans and insisting that Jesus Christ offered to us freely on a cross and all the riches that are ours in him are not enough. Forgive us, Lord. Father, you know your people. Thank you so much that you love us enough to to lead us and guide us in faith. Fix our eyes on Jesus. May he be our heart's desire. May he truly be our chosen portion and our cup as we live in this world. And we look forward to the world that is to come. May it come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.